this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences radio show that helps thinkers become Christians and Christians become thinkers. But this show is a lot more than that. We are prepared to give you the reasons, the scientific facts, so that you can have a strong faith, a confident faith, not a blind faith. You don't have to take a leap of faith and you don't have to bury your head in the sand as a Christian. We are prepared to give you the knowledge and the understanding so critical in today's multimedia world so that you can discern what is truth and to that end we are going to invite writer kirk hastings to join us this next hour and talk about his book what is truth hello everyone i'm dr michael arrakis hi and i'm kirk hastings kirk welcome back to the show i understand you're on sabbatical for the last couple of months thank you yes and uh, i hope that uh, you'll write your fourth book in the uh, next year or so Hmm. Today we're going to talk about your book, uh, once again, What is Truth? Because I think that it's just a, a wonderful primer for anybody who is looking at the facts of what truth is in today's um, really high-tech media market outlet uh, place where information is so abundant that you can actually get derailed and, and go down the wrong path. Uh, your book allows us to discern really fact from fiction. And it's a nice way to walk through the scientific evidences as to what is true. Because in today's world, you know, you, you have one of two choices. You can either believe in uh, evolution or you can believe in the God of creation. You can believe in a God that preordained and, and, and created what we see as life and the world that we live in. Or you can believe that uh, over eons and eons of time, Certain things happen randomly, and life started spontaneously, so-called spontaneous generation. I love the way you formatted this book with the glossary of terms. I love the way you have a very, very, very complete um, um, listing of all the authors and articles and books and so forth that you had to assimilate into this uh, wonderful book, What is Truth? Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, there are some listeners that will probably be very interested in getting this book, so tell us how... Uh, they can obtain this book. Really, the best way to get it uh, is probably to just go to your local bookstore and ask them to order a copy for you, and they'll be glad to do that. Or if you're internet-minded, they can go to Amazon.com and order it uh, pretty easily. Yes. Okay, great. Um, well, anyway, getting back to your book, I love the way you uh, walk the reader through uh, separating fact from fiction. Okay, and uh, one of the things that we're going to be uh, talking about is intelligent design. And we're going to talk about the cellular infrastructure and how improbable it is for something like the cell, which is so highly complex in its information systems and its subcellular organization, that it's highly improbable and actually impossible for something like that, something so complex to have evolved over eons and eons of time. 
Really, yes. It's, um, I point out in a number of places in my book that a number of things that evolutionary scientists today believe are actually, according to their own scientific beliefs, are contradictory. They're not consistent. Mm. They'll say that there's a bunch of evidence to support this point of view, but when you really look into it, there isn't all that much solid empirical evidence, You know, not nearly as much as they indicate that there is. So the real question that we're going to try to answer today is the theory of intelligent design, is it really true science or is the theory of evolution based on scientific fact? That's a good question. And so we're going to try to review some of the um, ins and outs of uh, that argument using the, um, the cell, the complexity of the cell to uh, back up our perspective from a creationist point of view. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use hard science not soft science, hard science, to show that our point of view, if looked at critically, is a viable alternative to the prevailing view that exists in our public school system. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the other things I point out in my book, of course, is that uh, especially the science of microbiology has, has made leaps and bounds in the last decade or two. And, of course, this was information that Charles Darwin did not have when he wrote his Origin of Species. He knew next to nothing about what the makeup of cells in the human body and the DNA and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he really, his theory was formed in ignorance of what was going on there. But now we know so much more about the cells that make up our body. They used to think that they were fairly simple little blobs of protoplasm and that was it. But now we know that they are much more complex than that and they are really... I've heard them described as little cities or little factories unto themselves. And when you think that you have billions of these little factories in your body that all are designed to do a specific job, that's pretty amazing to think that all of that could have come about by accident. And it's all coordinated and done in concert for the viability of each organ system, which is then uh, organized to work completely in sync with all of the other organ systems, or else you have failure. You have organ failure and then body failure. Well, that's what disease is, is when some part of the body stops functioning the way it's supposed to in concert with the rest of it, and it ends up, you end up having problems. Mm. Well, before we get into this uh, discussion, I wanted to remind our listening audience that you can call us at uh, 609-398-1020, or you can listen to this show streaming live on WIBG.com. Um, you can email us questions either before the show or after the show at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. That's our website. Um, now, I also wanted to make a comment, uh, Kirk, that uh, we have recorded now our 100th uh, podcast that's accessible on iTunes. So any mm-hmm. number of shows can be uh, downloaded just by going to the iTunes website. Uh, or you can get the the same podcast from our own uh, website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's great. And, and the most recent uh, uh, analysis of our website indicates that the two most commonly um, hit-upon sites or hit-upon um, uh, webcasts, podcasts, if you will, of, of recent shows are um, the one that we did um on uh, Revelation and Daniel specifically this past month Mm -hmm. with over 3,000 hits and counting. And then two weeks ago, Keith and I did a show on uh, aging, and that has over 2,000 hits and counting. Yeah. 
Our co-host, Keith Kendricks, is out in Minneapolis, St. Paul, getting trained on the latest and greatest uh, techniques from Medtronic pacemakers. He's a pacemaker specialist. And, you know, I was thinking about this on the way to the show, Kirk. When you look at a pacemaker, you know, in its simplest form, it's a wire, a battery, and a pulse generator that that can pulse an electrical signal down a wire into the heart muscle every second for 60 beats a second. Mm. Very simple machine. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's so simple, it's complicated and complex. From the manufacturing of the wire to the anchor that, that, that anchors the tip of that wire into the heart muscle on the inside of the heart, uh, to the, the battery that has to be manufactured to uh, specifications that are so exacting, mm-hmm. and then the casing and then the screws that hold it together, and then not to mention the surgeons that have to place it and program it and all that stuff. It's just so complicated. Even even though it sounds so simple, it's very complex, uh, you know, from from the design on down mm-hmm. to the placement. So, you know, when you're designing something like that or, or even the computer system in my office or an electronic medical record, you know, it just doesn't happen. It has to be designed from, from the ground think, up. Think of how many people took part in designing all the different parts of that pacemaker. And then look at the heart and how much more complicated the heart is than the pacemaker you're putting in there. And how can you believe that the pacemaker was built by intelligent people, but the heart came about by accident? Well, that's exactly right. The, the, the sinoatrial node, which is where the intrinsic pacemaker activity of the heart comes from, that's where the actual electrical impulse originates at the top right-hand ventricle, I'm sorry, the right atrial um, part of the heart. And then that impulse works its way down into both ventricles and then causes the heart to contract. That alone is complex design. And when that goes on the fritz, then somebody gets a pacemaker, which also had to be designed. Mm-hmm. So You're showing your doctor background it's, here. It's, it's, uh, it's very interesting, but uh, uh, Keith is a high-tech kind of a guy, and I was just thinking about him on the way <laughs> in. And uh, it just goes to show that there's a lot of design that goes into these systems, you know, whether it's a computer system or, you know, the, the board that uh, Josh manages at the front desk here to, to make this whole show happen. Right. You know, it's it's just a very complicated um, process. No matter what you live in or what you do, uh, some things had to be designed and they just don't happen. I still can't figure out how some things work. Like when I was a kid, I used to always ask, you know, how can you put a little needle on this piece of plastic called a record and all this music comes out? How does that work? Hmm. You know, of course, records are a little passe now. Some people out, younger people out there may not even know what I'm talking about when I talk about records. But I still don't quite understand how that works. Or how can you pop a little CD into a stereo and get all this sound and everything out of it? it it's really the technology is staggering that we've come up with. Mm. And I've always said to uh, people, I don't understand how somebody can feed a document into a fax machine on this and, and send digital signal through a telephone wire mm-hmm. on the other end and then have a complete document printed out. I mean, and now, now they've advanced to where they can actually send colored photographs and images that way mm. how does how does it do that through a little telephone wire uh just happens <laughs> yeah okay. it came about by accident right but anyway <laughs> let, let's get back to the the main topic of the show which is uh actually it's chapter eight in your book and it's entitled is the concept is the concept of intelligent design scientific and i'm going to start out by reading a um a quote from Philip, Philip Johnson, who's a renowned author and champion, really, of Christian apologetics. He's mm-hmm. a lawyer by training. And he says this, 
and this comes from Darwin on trial. He says, if we say that naturalistic evolution is science and supernatural creation is religion, the effect is not very different from saying that the former is true and the latter is fantasy. Tell me why you picked that quote to start the chapter, Kirk. Well, that really struck me the first time I read that because I never quite thought of it that way, but it's really true that this is the way secularists set up the argument. They start with this basic concept that, well, you know, we're scientists and we believe in evolution and everything that we believe is scientific, but what you believe is religion, and that's based on faith, which really has no basis in anything. It's just something you believe. So really, that's what they're saying when they frame the argument that way. They're saying that what we believe is science and based on reality, and what you believe is religion or faith, which basically is fantasy. Hmm. That's very interesting. You know, when I, I think back to 1859, when Charles Darwin first wrote On the Origin of the Species, um, pretty much most of the scientific community at that time believed in a creator god. Okay, oh, they, yeah, they, sure. They, they had a, a That's why faith. his book was so controversial when it came out, because at the time, no one, everyone believed that, to some extent, that there was some kind of intelligent designer or supernatural creator that had something to do with creating the universe. Yeah, and then about 60 to 65 years later, something very interesting happened. There began a reversal mm -hmm. in the trend of scientific thought, scientific mind, um, getting away from religion and getting into science, and that was the Scopes Monkey Trial in the mm -hmm. mid-1920s. So really what that was was uh, an expression of atheism coming out and saying, okay, now we they latched on to Darwinism as a way to justify what they believed, whereas really before that they didn't have much of an argument for their position. But once Darwin came along and said, look, here's a fairly good-sounding way of how the universe could have come about without an intelligent creator having anything to do with it. And boy, the atheists love that. It's like, wow, now we have something we can justify our side of the argument with. And they jumped on it. You know, it's interesting. In 1925, when the Scopes Monkey Trial happened in Dayton, Tennessee, it was just about illegal in most of the United States to teach the idea or the concept of Darwinian evolution in the public it was. schools. That's what the trial was about. A teacher had been teaching evolution in his class in Tennessee, and at the time, it was illegal in Tennessee to teach that. Right. And now it's completely reversed. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's just about illegal for any teacher in the public school system to teach the idea that God might have had a hand in creating the heavens and the earth. Right. It's, and every once in a while, uh, if you pay attention to the news, you'll hear stories pop up like not too long ago, there was a big controversy in Dover, Pennsylvania. They wanted to teach evolution and creationism side by side in the schools. And, of course, the secularists and the Darwinists went uh, ballistic over that. They were like, you can't do that. You can't do that. And had it, they finally got it defeated. Well, the, the secularists won. Yes, and they won the legal case. And basically... Based on the argument that you're trying to teach religion, and we have separation of church and state, therefore you can't teach that in the schools. Right. So now, they didn't actually deal that much with the validity of the argument on the side of intelligent design. They simply went for, well, this is religion, and you can't teach religion in the schools. Right. So basically, their, their stance was that science is based on reason and fact, Religion is based on faith. 
Therefore, science describes what is real. Religion describes basically mythology. That's their point of view. But is that reasonable? Is that a reasonable way to look at this whole argument? Well, I don't think it is, which is why I wrote this book. <laughs> My yeah. in This entire book that I wrote called What is Truth deals with this and says this is not this is not the truth. This is this is a very simplistic argument, which really is not valid. Right, and and the reason why we know that it's not valid is because there are more and more scientists and professionals, like Philip Johnson and lay people alike, who don't think that this is a reasonable way to approach this. No, that but we don't hear about them much in the media because the media doesn't like to interview those kind of people. Well, that's true. And uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this show is so that people know that there there are voices of scientific professionals, uh, even people like you and me, uh, who believe that there is enough critical evidence based on hard science mm-hmm. to believe that the opposite part of this coin is true. And yes. that is there is a creator God. You know, one of the problems that we had over the last couple hundred years is that the scientists would look at anybody with a, a reasonable faith and say, well, you believe in God because there's a gap of knowledge uh, and science that couldn't explain what we can now explain um, based on, you know, the most recent scientific evidences and, and facts and research. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the God of the gap is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as science explains more and more and more. But the problem right. is, is that with the advent of modern telescopes and spectroscopy and uh, electron microscopy, and all of the other uh, tools that are being utilized in the scientific arena, the god of the gap seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger for the scientists because the more they describe and explain, the more empty they're coming up with their poker hand. And they can't play their poker hand. For a while, it sounded fairly reasonable what they were saying, that, oh, science is explaining more and more from a natural point of view, therefore we don't need God to explain this stuff. But then the more we advanced with the science and the technology, we're to the point now where we know so much, we're actually creating more questions with this information than answers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what are, you know, what are the answers to this? Like when we discover how complex the, the cell in the human body really is, that creates questions, how did this all come about? And it's getting harder and harder to explain this type of thing by Darwinism. And, you know, I think that the uh, American people realize this. A lot of the Gallup polls indicate... Slowly they are. A lot of the Gallup polls indicate that about 90% of all Americans believe that there is a creator God. Well, this is one of the big frustrations for Darwinists, is they've been teaching Darwinism in the schools for, for decades. And yet, that's true. Most polls still show that about 90% of the population still believes that there's a God that had something to do with it. And this Mm. really frustrates the Darwinists. They're like, why do you still believe this? We've proved that this isn't true. Mm. But But many people instinctively know that there's something not quite right with this argument, with Mm. this argument that everything came about by accident. Mm. Even if they don't have all the facts, they still, it doesn't quite fit together for them. Yeah, and the evolutionists continue to insist that science can't have anything to do whatsoever with God. Um, and, you know, even if God himself might be beyond the limits of the scientific method, it doesn't mean that what he has done, that is, his creation, can be studied by science. No. We can study his his creation. Yes. Well, this and is one of the major points that Philip Johnson makes in his book, Darwin on Trial, is yes, we can't scientifically prove God's existence. 
but what he has done can be studied and we can do that by the laws of science and that evidence is very strongly points back to an intelligent designer correct even if you look at the beginning of the universe we know that the universe is expanding Mm -hmm. and by inference you can go back to the beginning there had to be a beginner or a creator right i mean we know that so it couldn't be expanding without having a starting point somewhere that's correct so here here's the real issue it turns out that there is a great deal of hard scientific evidence that indicates that very thing and that people feel that it's time that the evidence be taken seriously that is from a creation perspective right okay it just can't be thrown aside by the scientific community and say that uh, you know where they say that God is beyond the scope of science, therefore, it can't be. So okay. let's not deal with this. Let's not deal with it. So, right. But creationism is here to stay, and intelligent design is a, a scientific way of packaging God, the creator, um, sort of indirectly. You know, we can't prove that God exists. We know that. But we can certainly see that there's evidence in the proof of every living cell that mm-hmm. God was there at the beginning to design it. The well, it's, it's kind of like the old argument. If you're walking along on the beach and you find a pocket watch laying there, mm. you can't prove that that pocket watch was made by somebody, but there's a heck of a lot of evidence you can come up with that indicates that this thing didn't form naturally on mm. the ocean floor and wash up on the beach all by itself. Mm. Yeah, I've heard it explained another way, too, that a hurricane ripped through a junkyard and a mm. Boeing 747 suddenly appeared. Right. You know, that certainly can happen That's basically either. the kind of thing that evolutionists are asking us to believe, that that's how life came about, is totally by accident, like that example you just gave. Right. And when you frame it that way, it sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? And again, it comes down to two viewpoints. Either you believe in spontaneous generation, which has been scientifically disproved. That's right. Or you believe in creation. That's right. Supernatural creation. Yep. Okay, and that would be pointing back to the God of the Bible. Darwinism itself is inconsistent with a number of scientific laws that we know are true. Mm-hmm. And we can get into that uh, towards the end of the show. I wanted to talk about a, a scientific philosopher by the name of Karl Popper, P-O-P-P-E-R, who, mm-hmm. came, uh, who was born in 1902 and lived uh, till about 16 years ago. In 1994, mm-hmm. he died. Right. But he once wrote that Darwinism is not really a scientific theory because natural selection is an all-purpose explanation which can account for anything and which therefore explains nothing. Right. Can you explain that to the uh, listening audience, Kirk? Well, another way to say that is that in order to come up with a a valid scientific theory of something, one of the rules of science is that if you can't disprove, if there's no evidence that something can be disproved, it's it's not a scientific theory. In other words, if you come up with something that can explain anything from any point of view, it's really not of much use because in the end it doesn't explain anything. It's not specific enough. Uh, that's basically where evolution has gotten today is that it, it's such a broad, simplistic idea they, that uh, a believer in it can stretch it to cover almost any argument or any question you come up with. Mm. Therefore, really, 
what good is it? Because there's nothing that explains everything. Everything's got a downside to it or, you know, an instance where it doesn't work. But evolution, no matter what argument you bring against it, they always have a counter argument. It's not disprovable. And therefore, according to the own, the laws of science itself that scientists use, if something is not disprovable to some extent, it can't be scientific. That's interesting. And you know, what's interesting, too, is that Popper uh, relegated the, the term natural selection or Darwinian evolution to metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And, and he used the metaphysics uh, designation to describe all theories that are not empirically testable. Mm-hmm. And he included evolutionary Darwinian theory in this group. That's right. For those reasons. You can't reproduce Darwinian evolution in a laboratory. It's not repeatable. Understood. But they'll say that it took billions of years. Right. And random processes. Well, see, that's the interesting part is they can always come up with with an explanation for why it works or doesn't work. (laughs) It's interesting. It's uh, not disprovable. There's no way that you can argue against it. <laughs> you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis with renowned author Kirk Hastings. Welcome back to the show, Kirk. We're Gee, discussing, thanks for that renowned part. <laughs> we're discussing his book, What is Truth? And this is a handbook for separating fact from fiction in a propaganda-filled world. And uh, we're talking about the science of intelligent design and we're going to talk specifically in a very short period of time about the uh, complexity of the intracellular uh, um, really the intracellular infrastructure if you will because it's very very complex Mm -hmm. Um, getting back to uh, a biology professor uh, by the name of uh, Paul Ehrlich he's at the university uh, at Stanford University Uh, he said this our theory of evolution has become as Dr. Popper has described one which cannot be refuted by any possible observations. Every conceivable observation can be fitted into it, and it is thus outside of empirical science. That's what I meant by when I said it's, it's not disprovable. Right. And he went on to say this, ideas either without basis or based on a few laboratory experiments carried out in extremely simplified systems have attained currency far beyond their validity. And they have become part of our of an evolutionary dogma accepted by most of us as part of our training. Mm-hmm. So basically, scientists are being raised in this culture with blinders on their eyes so that they can come to no other conclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay. However, there are scientists today who are coming to a different conclusion. Many of them, in fact. There are websites uh, you can find on the Internet now which actually have lists of hundreds and thousands of scientists that are turning their point of view from Darwinian evolution to creationism. Okay. I understand that we do have a caller on the line. Josh Josh has just informed me of that. Hello, caller. State your name and uh, tell us what your question is. Hi, Mike and Kirk. This is Nancy. I just called to congratulate Evidence for Faith on their 100th show that you guys are doing right now. Oh, well, thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. I'm, since Keith can't call in, I'm doing it in his stead. So <laughs> carry on, and interesting topic. Thank you very much, Nancy. Take care. Bye. Bye now. 100 shows. Wow. Yeah, 100. We got 100 uh, shows on the um, uh, 
website now. 100 more shows and we'll be equal with Dancing with the Stars. We, we actually <laughs> did 102 shows, but two of them, for whatever reason, uh, because of glitches in, in software and or recording, never made it to a, a, a disc that could be downloaded onto the website. Oh, they've been lost to history, huh? They've been lost, but that's okay. I'm sure that uh, many shows to come, uh, the, those little pieces that were lost will be uh, somehow uh, booted into the... Uh, They'll be revisited again. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the scientists today that are coming out and taking a stand, um, they are not willing to settle for this soft science that's being peddled by the uh, evolutionary camp. No. Okay. Um, there are more independent-minded scientists today that aren't necessarily following the rest of the crowd the way has been the, uh, you know, the trend in the past, which right. is a good thing. A scientist should be as objective as possible and should be open to considering all possibilities and all evidence, not simply looking at one set of evidence and rejecting everything else out of hand without even studying it. Well, let, let's talk about a couple of those uh, scientists. Uh, Michael Denton comes to mind. He's a molecular biologist. Yes. And he, he has become so bold as to openly de declare that one single empirical discovery or scientific advance since 1859 has ever validated any belief in Darwinism. Hmm. So he's saying that there's nothing out there of, of hard scientific fact that could validate Darwinism. It's strictly no. within theoretical realms or as Popper described it in the metaphysical realm. But Even with all the messing around with genes and everything that we do today and uh, microbiology and, um, you know, messing around with uh, fruit flies and all the different things that we do, we've never actually been able to change one species into another in the laboratory. And that's really what Darwinism is saying, is that over time, different species have changed into other species. Mm. But we've never been able to repeat that in a laboratory, even with genetic engineering, many, many intelligent mm -hmm. scientists trying to figure out how to do it, and yet they tell us that this happened by accident somehow, and they can't even repeat it mm. in a laboratory. Well, another, another um, scientist that comes to mind, Kirk, is uh, um, uh, Michael Behe. He's a, uh, a biology professor at uh, Lehigh University, and he wrote a book. Yes. He wrote a book uh, that was released in 1996, uh, Darwin's Black Box. Yes. Now, I had the um, um, wonderful fortune of hearing him speak in 1996 uh, in all, all places, Hamilton, New Jersey. Wow. He was at one of the local um, churches speaking uh, about his book, and I was able to hear him, and I was fascinated by the fact that here was an intelligent man with a Ph.D. in science teaching at a major university on the East Coast of the United States mm -hmm. who was taking a stand and stepping out and saying, hey, there is something behind this. Mm -hmm. Okay, there, there is room for a creator God because systems are so complex that if you take out one little piece of that system, the whole thing falls apart. Yes. He came out with the idea which he calls irreducible complexity, mm -hmm. which means that a complex system, uh, if you take one part of that system out, it no longer works. So it, it's no good for survival. So how could living animals and creatures or plants or whatever, how could they possibly have evolved from, for instance, changing from a dinosaur to a mammal and a mammal to a man? How could they have done all this if 
any of the changes that t- would need to take place along the way for this to happen would make the creature unfit for survival. Mm. You would think, according to the to scientific laws that we know, that these creatures would simply have died out. They wouldn't have changed into something else. And really, that's what most um, mutations today, that's what happens, is the creature that is mutated is no longer fit for survival and dies. So how did this happen millions and millions of times over history in order to change uh, a few original species into all the things that we see today? It, it just, even scientifically, when you look at it closely, it doesn't make much sense. Well, you're right. And, you know, if you do look at the fossil record, you don't see any new new forms, new created forms. But no. the fossil record is is replete of forms dying off. So we, we hear of a, of a different species every year that's now on the endangered species list. And, of course, we've lost right. many species through the years, uh, but we've had no new species come into being. Right. And that's another question for Darwinists, is why are all these species dying out? Why aren't they adapting to the different conditions that we're creating for them and evolving into something else that can survive? That's what they're saying has happened over the course of history. Why isn't it happening now? Mm. It's not. Species do die out all the time. It's very interesting. Uh, But anyway, uh, for anybody who wants to read Michael Behe's book, uh, it's available. And um, it's a very, very fascinating read. I did read it myself, and I would strongly recommend uh, reading that, Darwin's Black Box. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the subtitle on that is The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution, written in 1996. Um, And again, irreducible complexity is the main theme that uh, that he draws on. And Darwin Mm -hmm. even admitted in a letter uh, that he wrote to his colleague Lyle uh, back in 1859 that if somebody could show that incremental changes either going backwards or forward that did not allow for the the species to evolve would be the death blow to his theory. And Michael B. has essentially done that. That's correct. He he showed that uh, there was a an Achilles heel in the Darwinian theory. Um, and get and yet because Darwinistic thinking is so entrenched upon um, among so many scientists today, they're very resistant to listening to this. Yeah, and there's a there's a great uh, uh, movie out there called Expelled, which uh, chronicles the the wall that the modern scientific community has set up. Yes, that uh, absolutely forbids any contradictory uh, thought process other than evolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. And if you think of uh, any, if there's any scientist that really wants to delve into the creationist side of that argument, he puts his um, his um, uh, scientific and or research career in jeopardy. Those type of people are immediately ostracized Correct. by the Darwinist community. They won't even allow them to come forward with their side of the argument. Right. And, and they're just that, kicked right out the door. Right. They lose their tenure and, and um, right. lose their research grants and so forth. That um, movie's available on DVD, and I would recommend looking at that because it's a real eye-opener as to what's going on in the scientific community today and has been going on for decades. Yeah, this is the Ben Stein movie, and in fact, uh, a year and a half after that movie was released, uh, he was released by the New York Times as one of their uh, uh, critics uh, on Wall Street. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So he was He's essentially... He's a funny guy. <laughs> he was essentially expelled, too. 
he used to do the Visine commercials on TV, and those always cracked me up. And he's exactly the same way in this movie. He he delivers the information with the same deadpan uh, delivery that he does everything else, and it's it's really very an entertaining movie to watch. But anyway, let let's talk about cellular complexity, um, and why it is that uh, we have so much difficulty in reconciling uh, creationism and Darwinism. Okay. And I think that if you look uh, through the eyes of an electron microscope and look at the way it's so complex, why it is that something so highly complex and an information system in the DNA of each nucleus is so complex, why it is that this sort of a system could not possibly have evolved. Mm -hmm. And I think that by the end of this show, we're going to... uh, give three or four examples put forth by mathematicians and or uh, scientists uh, that give the probability of these things being absolutely implausible, if not totally impossible. Yeah. So the mathematical odds are just so much totally against uh, something like this complex intracellular system uh, evolving. But and anyway, you're probably not going to hear that on the nightly news. No. Not at all, but nope. you will you will hear it on Evidence for Faith, and that's one of the yep. reasons why we want to bring these uh, things to the listening audience so that they can have a confident faith and know that um, science uh, is not adding up to Darwinian evolution. As Paul Harvey used to say, we're here to tell the rest of the story. <laughs> Interesting. But anyway, when you look at DNA, the double-stranded helix that contains the information of each living being, uh, and remember, uh, Kirk, every cell has a, a, a genetic duplicate copy of the DNA. Every cell carries Mm -hmm. in its nucleus the complete set, but only certain parts of that DNA based on the cell and the organ within which it resides, certain parts of the DNA are activated so that that cell can carry out certain replication cycles and protein synthesis and so forth. So it's very highly organized, not only down to the cell, but also by the organ system so that the complete organism can function as a whole. Now, this is a... a, a That's staggering when you think about a, that. It's an integrated systems approach where the entire organism has to survive based on the interplay and communication of all the cells within the, each organ and each organ within the body. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, chaos results. Okay. Not only is it amazing to think of all that information in each single cell, but how does each cell know which information to use and which information not to use? Mm-hmm. In other words, how does the cell in your arm know to make an arm instead of make a leg or make a liver or whatever? Mm-hmm. That in itself is staggering to contemplate that. Yeah. Well, we, we do know from embryology that those things are predetermined. Um, and the certain cells that eventually uh, go into those cellular systems and organ systems know when to turn on and turn off. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's really what the current science of working with stem cells is about, is they're trying to figure out how to use uh, cells, taking a cell from an adult. Uh, Of course, there's the controversial, the embryonic stem cells, but they're actually having much more success with the adult stem cells, Mm -hmm. where they're trying to figure out how to tell these cells to become what they want it to become. For instance, if they want to treat someone with liver disease, they want to be able to take a cell from a healthy adult and tell it to make a liver to, or to replace the part of the liver that's damaged. Mm-hmm. Once they figure that out, if they ever do, that's going to be an amazing piece of medical technology. Yes, it is. But it's all there waiting to be discovered, and it's 
been there, all that information has been there since the beginning. Where did all that information come from? Right, and we do know now from genetic research that all the DNA was pre-programmed from the beginning and all these pieces mm-hmm. of information get turned on and turned off at the right time and in the right location of the body in order to make the body uh, run correctly. Yep. But beyond that, you know, it has to do with generating power, manufacturing specific proteins, uh, dictating the function of these proteins, getting the proteins once they're manufactured from the factory where they're made to the place where it has to go into the cell, mm-hmm. um, managing all the transfer of the information with the messenger RNA. I mean, it's just a staggering amount of information that has to run perfectly. And if it doesn't work perfectly, then you have cellular breakdown, organ system failure, or worse yet, cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what cancer is, is a cell that's improperly functioning. Well, it's it's beyond that. It's where you have misinformation and unbridled growth. You have uh, growth of cells that are that are too numerous and not stopping when they should stop, and so a tumor results because as, of un- as a doctor, would you characterize this type of thing as a mutation of a cell? Is uh, this a cell mutating into something that's not supposed to be? Well, there there are many reasons for cancer to happen. Mutation is one reason. Okay. Okay. Some of them can be induced by viruses. Some of them can be du- induced by chemicals. So, but it, it's a problem with unbridled cellular growth because something went awry. Okay? But yet, is it ever reasonable to think that one of these cells, if it mutates, it would mutate into a better cell than it was before? Well, from a, from a medical perspective, I've never seen in print any medical mutation that resulted in a benefit to the human body. Right. Most mutations that we know of occur silently, and then they are, they are fixed, okay, by the right. body. The right. body has systems in place to cut out bad sets of genes and, and mutated copies, okay? There, there, yeah. are, there are systems in place to take care of that, which only speaks more about intelligent design. The immune system and things like that. Okay, right. So, um, but anyway, getting back to your original question, that when I see a genetic mutation in medicine, it either causes disease, death, or deformity. But again, it has to be expressed most genetic defects um, are silent, mm-hmm. most of them, but the ones that are expressed end up as disease, death, or deformity. I call it the 3Ds. Yet Darwinian evolution is based on this idea that mute, mutating cells are what lead to new species. How do you see the possibility of that as a doctor? I don't. <laughs> that's the problem. Right, and that's one of the reasons why when I when I first heard Michael Behe in 1996, I I went wow here's a guy with a PhD in advanced science degree he's a pro- full full, uh, full pr- professor mm-hmm. at a major university who believes in a creator God I thought that was phenomenal mm-hmm. and I thought I'm not alone Th- it right. was a wonderful revelation for me yeah you know this isn't some bum off the street that's saying this stuff no exactly or a religious nut. <laughs> Well, anyway, getting back to the cell, Kirk, uh, there are a whole lot of other things that are in place. You know, we touched briefly on on the uh, genetics and DNA, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have RNA, and that's that's the messenger copy that's spun off of the DNA mm-hmm. to carry all the information to the protein factory and for other systems to start uh, getting organized and into production. Mm-hmm. So that is the messenger piece. And the nucleus, of course, is the central control room where all of this stuff resides, mm-hmm. okay? And every uh, living cell in the body has one except one. Do you know what it is? Tell me. A mature red blood cell does not have a nucleus in it. Really? It's the only cell in the body that does not have a nucleus. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it doesn't need one. And the reason being is that it lasts in the body for about 120 days, and all it does is carry oxygen and carbon dioxide. And then it dies, and then it gets recycled. Wow. So the spleen picks it up, breaks it down, and uh, recycles all the parts. But there's another intelligent design system in place. Wow, that's amazing. Because once the red cell is manufactured as the complete protein, its function is there, and then it just operates for 100 to 120 days, carrying oxygen and, and um, carbon dioxide, and then it gets broken down and replaced. Mm-hmm. So that's, like I said, another system that's in place. You heard it here first, folks. Well, no. <laughs> I heard it somewhere else. That's why I'm just sharing it with the folks. Right. All right. So then we have uh, the protein manufacturing machines called ribosomes. Mm-hmm. And there are thousands of these in each cell that manufacture the variety of proteins that are necessary to function uh, within each cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and these ribosomes are the, the factories upon which the messenger RNA sits to manufacture the specific proteins that were coded for in the first place on the DNA. And then the transfer, um, let's say the architectural uh, blueprint, if you will, gets sent to the protein factory in the form of messenger RNA. And then the proteins are manufactured according to the specs right off of the DNA or the master architect's copy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay? You know, it's funny. I was looking at the um, the drawings, the architectural renditions of, of the building in which I practice, mm-hmm. and there were four sets that, that outlined not only the the space that's occupied and the walls and so forth, but then you had the, the heating system and the ducts, and then you had the electrical mm-hmm. system, the outlets, the lights, uh, and all of the other wiring circuitry mm-hmm. and, and so forth. So it was like one layer upon the other, and it built up, and, and suddenly this building happened. It's amazing to I watch a new building being built and to see everything that goes within the walls that you don't even know is there. <laughs> Correct. But you know the most amazing thing about all of this? is that as intelligent as we are in, in the scientific and the engineering communities and the things that can be manufactured, whether it's a Boeing 747 or mm-hmm. a rocket or the space shuttle, mm-hmm. all of these systems were designed by intelligent people. Mm-hmm. But none of these things can reproduce itself and create another, let's say, space shuttle. Right. Okay? But the cell, your cells, your germ cells, can produce another Kirk Hastings. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a scary thought. Certainly is. I. Th- <laughs> No, I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's... My it, wife is probably quaking at the thought it, right now. <laughs> it's, it's frightening to think that these complex systems can re- reproduce themselves and manufacture another copy of that being. Right. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. There are many science fiction and horror stories based on that idea of taking somebody's DNA or a cell or something, or, you know, like Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. recreating a dinosaur from a piece of dinosaur DNA. Well, anyway, there's a whole lot more in the cell, Kirk. I'm just going to mention them briefly, like the mitochondria, where the, the energy is produced in each cell, uh, the lysozymes, which are the channels through which uh, energy, I'm sorry, through which waste and matter are eliminated from the cell so that mm-hmm. the, the cell doesn't get bogged down, um, the Golgi apparatus, um, which packages certain molecules to be um, sent to certain parts uh, of the cell or the organ system, and then all of the enzymes and regulatory proteins that are manufactured on a day-by-day basis as the need arises so that the function of the cell continues. And then each cell itself has a cytoskeleton, that is the cell membrane and everything else that, that houses and packages the entire cell. Mm-hmm. So all of these things have to work in concert with each cell side-by-side, 
making up an organ system and then ultimately making up uh, the entire body. So all yeah. of these organ systems together uh, packaged by the skin or our earth suit are what make up a human being, but all life forms have that. Right. So, but I think the most compelling argument for um, irreducible complexity is one of chirality, okay? Chiral solutions are solutions in um, biology whereby we have a handedness assigned to it. For instance, you can have amino acids with left-handed and right-handed configurations. In other mm -hmm. words, mirror image copies, if you will. So if you look at, let's say, uh, alanine, which is an amino acid, it exists in, in nature in both right-handed and left-handed forms. Mm -hmm. Okay. However, in life systems, amino acids only exist in a left-handed configuration, mm -hmm. not both left and right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you look at DNA, it exists in life in right-handed configurations. All of the nucleotides and base, base pairs that are organized to make up DNA are in a right-handed configuration. So DNA mm -hmm. is right-handed, amino acids are left-handed. Now, if you take the primordial soup, okay, which is what you know the, the evolutionists say life sprung from, Mm -hmm. You would have had right-handed and left-handed amino acids, a big soup, a bubbling soup, and you would have had maybe some, some uh, the precursors of DNA in the form of nucleotides, all in right-handed and left-handed forms. But to get life, you'd have to have only amino acids in a left-handed configuration or DNA in right-handed configuration to come up with life. The right. odds against this happening by random chance with just the singular handedness or the what from that chiral solution is minimal we mm -hmm. call it homo chirality meaning same handedness mm -hmm. so the amino acids would all have to be left-handed and all the nucleotide base pairs would have to be right-handed in order for a cell in in the format that we know it today that's seen by a scanning electron micro microscope would have that same handedness I just thought of kind of a simplistic example of what you're trying to say if you had a line of a hundred people on a football field and all of them were right-handed and you had another line of another hundred people that were all left-handed and they all jumped into a pot together and the pot mixed them all up and they all came out and whatever order they came out in they would all form a line again what are the odds that all of the right-hand line would still be all the right-handed ones and the other line would be all the left-handed ones and there would be no mixture anywhere that's basically what you're saying is that that's how life comes about. Mm. And the odds of it doing that by accident are almost nil. Well, it, it's just not rational to assume that that could happen. Well, we, we have a couple of, um, of quotes from scientists uh, as well as mathematicians as to what the probability or the odds are of mm -hmm. life coming from a primordial soup. Yes. Just based on, on handedness, if you will or life systems coming about because of random chance and or mutation. Right. And the odds are astronomically nil mm -hmm. that speak against uh, evolution. And by, by um, deduction, we're left with, well, there must have been a creator who had all of this pre prefigured and preconceived. Okay. If you look at um, a scientist by the name of Muncaster who tried to look at the truth uh, under all of this, uh, trying to find out how um, possible or plausible it was for spontaneously generated cells to come about from non-living chemicals. 
He said this, the chances of assembling 10,000 left-handed amino acids and 100,000 right-handed nucleotides is one chance in 10 to the 300 billionth power. Right. That's a lot of zeros after that 10. It certainly is. It's 1 times 10 to the 300 billionth power. That's incredible odds for a cell to have spontaneously generated from the primordial soup. Right. Okay. Um, and he also gives the example here. He says the odds of winning a typical state lottery with a single ticket are about 1 in 10 million, which would be 10 to the 7th. Yeah, and power. I wouldn't even buy a lottery ticket based on those odds. Right. They say you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than winning the lottery. So you know how far-fetched that is. And then when you compare 10 to the 7th power with 10 to the 300 billionth power, I mean, what kind of odds are we talking about here? Literally impossible. Yeah, uh, Of course, we're only talking st statistics here, but statistically we're saying Darwinian evolution is impossible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about microbiologist Michael Denton. Okay, he said this, to get a cell by chance would require at least 100 functional proteins to appear spontaneously in one place. This is 100 simultaneous events, each of an independent probability, which could hardly be more than 10 to the 20th power, mm -hmm. give, giving a maximum combined probability of 10 to the minus 2,000 times 8 times 8. That's not, not too likely. No. That's, that's <laughs> incredible odds against the possibility of spontaneous generation of one living cell. And yet this is what Darwinists want you to believe, and they say that believing in God is far-fetched, but this isn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, Harold Morowitz, another microbiologist, calculated the odds of a cell randomly assembling under the most ideal conditions to be one chance in 10 to the 100 trillionth power. That's nine, ten, eleven zeros. That that's after it. Phenomenal. Okay. Unbelievable. And for each of the one hundred different specific genes to be formed spontaneously, uh, with the minimum number of genes needed formed over ten billion years, the probability I, I can't even come up with this number. You're gonna have to help me with that one. Um, it, it looks like a uh, calculus uh, thing on, on a professor's chalkboard, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's 10 to the minus 30th times 1 over 10 <laughs> equals 10 to the minus 3,000 for them to be formed all at the same time and in close proximity. Um, and mm. consequently, the probability would be much lower. Not too likely. Not too much at all. <laughs> but anyway, you have been listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we would like to uh, invite you to listen in again next Sunday between 4 and 5. Author Kirk Hastings will be back with us once again uh, to talk more about his book, What is Truth? And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Is there an equation to life? But in the midst of every day, there's a clue there.